0: Today is July 25th, 2011, and my guest is Deborah Satz, the Marta Sutton Weeks Professor of Ethics and Society in the Department of Philosophy at Stanford University. She is the author of Why Some Things Should Not Be For Sale, The Moral Limits of the Market. Deborah, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Your book on the moral limits of markets is very provocative in the best sense of the word for this economist. You start the book by criticizing the sterility of how markets are viewed by modern economists relative to classical economists, Smith, Ricardo, Marx. What do you think is wrong with how modern economists look at markets?
1: Um, So I have a a number of um, places where I think that the modern view has lost some of the insights of the earlier view. And the first thing is that modern economists tend to treat, this isn't completely true, but tend to treat all markets as the same. So they're more interested in the quantitative properties of markets, the equations that you can use to write down the supply and demand curves, and less interested in the qualitative dimensions of markets. And I think that's a mistake because I think in the abstract, you're losing some information that you need about particular markets. And so I, in my book, explore the qualitative dimensions of markets that people respond to intuitively. So intuitively, people have very different reactions to markets in body parts than they do to markets in automobiles, even though all of these things can be represented by the same set of equations. um, There's an intuitive um, disgust um, or abhorrence to certain kinds of market transactions, and what I'm interested in is seeing what in the concrete, in particular heterogeneous markets, what can be said on behalf of some of the intuitive reactions people have.
0: One of the, I thought one of the most important examples you give is labor markets. Certainly we can draw supply and demand for labor, wage rate that results if there's competition. Um, but you argue that labor markets are very different in particular Uh, You give other examples as well, but labor markets are particularly important to be treated in a different way.
1: Right. So one of the things about an apple market is we don't tend to think that the buying and selling of an apple and the way it's bought and sold has a lot of consequences for the nature of the apple. Um, You know, I can pick an apple, I can buy it from the guy across the street, I can buy it from the organic grocery, an apple is an apple but the conditions under which labor is bought and sold can have effects on the laborers themselves. So, you know, lots of literature in the, you know, turn of this century, but also in um, among the classical political economists looked at the effects of certain ways of organizing a labor market on the skill set of the workers themselves. And so if a labor market promotes de-skilling or lack of education then we have reason to be concerned about that market in a way that we're not concerned about the de-skilling of apples. Sure. um, Although if you're Michael Pollan and interested in food, you might worry about the way apples are produced. Maybe chickens, chickens, but
0: but maybe not apples either. (laughs) So, and you give an example, for example, Adam Smith certainly was very aware of this, talks about it quite a bit in... In uh, the Wealth of Nations, some in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, he's obviously extremely concerned about the large group of people who were laborers in England in his day and the impact of various policies and competitive aspects of markets.
1: Right. So Adam Smith, who's sometimes viewed as a you know unquestioning critic, uh, sorry, unquestioning uh, proponent of markets and an opponent of market regulation, actually has a much more sophisticated view. And one of the things you see in, um, in uh, The Wealth of Nations is his concerns about the de-skilling of work, about um, the conditions of work, and at one point he says that in the modern pin factory, um, in effect, you're making workers as much as making pins, and you can be making workers in ways that are not compatible with those workers participating in public life as responsible citizens, and therefore we need the state to intervene, for example, to provide education. Um, Ricardo worried a lot about land markets, mm-hmm. right, and had a view that land was very different than other kinds of commodities. In particular, land's, you know, value... Doesn't have anything to do with productive contribution. Land, as land grows more scarce, its marginal value goes up, even though the um, entrepreneur may be adding nothing.
0: Sure. And of course, Karl Marx.
1: And of course, Very Karl Marx about it. thought a lot about, in particular, labor markets.
0: You know, when you mentioned Adam Smith, and we've talked a lot about specialization on this program, and and even literally we've talked about the pin factory more than once. Um, I would say the the cultural condemnation of that, of the power of specialization, comes, the most dramatic example is Modern Times, mm-hmm. Charlie, Chaplin's Charlie Chaplin's film, story. where a worker who's highly specialized does the same dull, repetitive activity over and over again. it's clearly, certainly for, for many people, it would be degrading to be, for that to be your best alternative. Maybe not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Some people might like a mindless job, but many people, of course, do not. What strikes me is how much the world of specialization specialization has changed over the last 250 years. You make a number of interesting observations about how class-conscious Smith, and and certainly Marx obviously, were. They they lived in a time when there was a lot less mobility between classes. And then you think about how Smith didn't really talk about the pin factory, but that Charlie... Chaplin movie would have is, is chilling and to, I think, anybody. Mm-hmm. And yet in today's world, specialization can often be something really glorious and wonderful. You're specialized in ethics. Uh, doctors specialize in a tiny, maybe one disease, or a biochemist might specialize in one protein or one process. They don't find their life dreary and boring. So one view is that some of these phenomenon, phenomena and forces are time-specific.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd also want to make a distinction between specialization and Uh de-skilling, so that specialization, as you say, is necessary in a modern, complex world where there's just too much information for anybody to do everything well. But the doctor who specializes in cancer or the philosopher is not um, uh, functioning at the skill level of a non-human machine. Correct. And the Charlie Chaplin movie and the pin factory, as Adam Smith paints it, you really have people, in effect, acting as what Marx once referred to as appendages to machines. So there's nothing of their human capacity um, to make and do and be that's being um, called for. And of course, so,
0: but of course, the irony is, is that because of that. So many of those processes, we've taken the human component out. We've substituted so-called smart machines, robots, mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. things, which has the virtue of not having those opportunities available to, to people to become machines, and the negative, yes. that they don't yes. have that opportunity. Right. So right. that transition uh, is obviously a challenge. Now, w- one of the things you criticize in the book which I about modern economics, which I wholeheartedly applaud, is your... Uh, I would say disrespect for efficiency as a decisive argument. So why don't you talk about what your complaints are about efficiency and uh, what you think economists have missed there.
1: Okay. So I, I mean I should say I don't I'm not a fan of inefficiency. I understand, so. sure. Neither <laughs> but, am I. <laughs> but I think it's a it's a more limited notion than we've um, I think economists have recognized. And in particular, it's normatively limited. So the first thing is efficiency is always relative to background, some background starting position. So if the background starting position is very unequal, um, an, an outcome can be efficient but highly morally questionable. So Amartya Sen, I think, gives the example of, you know, imagine a society in which somebody, there are some billionaires and some people who are desperately poor... Well, if you take the Pareto notion of efficiency, the notion on of Pareto, Pareto efficiency, then it's inefficient to transfer any resources from the billionaire to the desperately poor, um, and that—that's true. That would be, you know, so an arrangement that did that. that it would harm somebody because point. it would harm make somebody worse off. Right. And so, the, if you think of Pare- the Pareto idea of efficiency as reaching a point in which. Nobody can be made better off without somebody being made worse off. We'll start with the billionaire and the very desperately poor person. Suppose the only way to make the desperately poor person better off is to take a dollar from the billionaire. The Pareto efficiency would condemn that as an inefficient arrangement. Yet many people would think in a circumstance like that, a transfer from the billionaire to the desperate, of of course, is um, justified. So it's a narrow notion, Normatively, from a moral point of view, there will be a lot of um, social arrangements that are uh, criticizable, even though they're efficient. So I think saying something is efficient, first of all, it's always efficient with respect to what? Um, and then I also, in, in the book, worry, so one way we talk about an arrangement being inefficient, Um, is to say, so a a standard way of thinking of inefficiency is to say um, markets can be inefficient when they generate third-party effects. They could make some third party worse off. And the problem is the notion of externality is actually an under-theorized idea in economics because if you think about it, there are very few transactions that don't make people Somebody worse off in a Agreed. complex world. Agreed. You build a road, you know, some old business on the on the older road gets hurt. You build a skyscraper, you block the sun of somebody's apartment. Very I few read things a book that, that you, I, that I find book.
0: distasteful. Yeah, which an example you gave, which I always give to my students. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, certainly, does that give me moral grounds that economic grounds for intervene? You know, for you to intervene, and in does that give you economic grounds to intervene in my? Book choice, my Netflix mm-hmm. queue, my etc. Yeah.
1: Right. So if you're thinking about setting social policies, you need more than just the notion of inefficiency and externality in order to think about what to do. And so part of what I want to do is just open up. It's not rejecting or throwing over these notions, it's sort of opening it, them up and first of all saying what kinds of externalities ought to we to care about and you know, if efficiency isn't the sole value that we ought to think about when we're thinking about markets, what are the other values that are important?
0: Yeah, and I, I agree overwhelmingly with, with almost all of that. Um, I, I do think the profession has oversold. And for those listening at home, efficiency is a technical piece of economic mm-hmm. jargon. It, it isn't the everyday use of the word that we often think of, like the economy is working well. Uh, they can be correlated, inefficient economies and inefficiency in the jargon sense. But it's usually used in a very specific term and way in, in economics. And the way, one way is what, the way you mentioned, which is the, the Pareto criteria, that it would be inefficient if someone could be made better off without making someone worse off. We'd certainly want that to happen. The other way to think about it is efficiency. The claim is made that an efficient market maximizes net benefits to all involved. Or uh, a certain intervention would be inefficient because the net gains are smaller than the net losses. And I used to teach that way, incidentally, uh, to my microeconomic students. It's very much part of the Chicago tradition. Mm -hmm. Deadweight loss is the term for these Mm -hmm. uh, net losses. And I stopped teaching it, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago for two reasons. One is I didn't find it persuasive as a normative tool and I think most economists just treat it as open and shut, which is absurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second is, uh, it's fundamentally utilitarian. And I've increasingly been uncomfortable with utilitarian measures as guidelines. Mm-hmm. So I would defend the terms, the concepts of externality and, e- and efficiency as helpful ways to organize your thinking, but certainly not rules. And it... it or, or absolute guides. And so, for example, in the case of efficiency, to me, the right way to think about efficiency is if a policy is inefficient, it means the pie is not as big as it could be. So what? There, mm-hmm. th- As you say, many of us would feel overwhelmingly about the justice of a, of a move that made the pie smaller but changed how it was distributed in, in various ways. And I'll, I'll come back and we'll give some mm-hmm. examples where we'll see how much we agree on with mm-hmm. you know, some of those policies. But I just think I think economists oversell it as sort of a magic um, uh, elixir to, to, to for policy judgments, and I certainly uh, agree with you that it's not let let 's take some examples from the book uh, and talk about some some of the critiques you you bring of economics and more accurately talk about the critiques you make of leaving things to markets and, mm-hmm. and see where where what the arguments are so one great example that you take, I think, from Thomas Schelling, although he may have gotten it from somewhere else, oh, is the
1: Titanic. The Titanic. Mm-hmm. So,
0: talk about the Titanic and, and what we learned from that.
1: So, um, it is a Schelling example, and I think it's a very thoughtful example. And I, I've thought a lot about it. I don't, I I don't have a you know a fully satisfactory account of what's going on in this example. But Schelling asks us to think about the distribution of um, access to lifeboats on the Titanic. So on the original Titanic, um, you could purchase a seat with access to a lifeboat or a third-class seat, which did not come with sufficient lifeboat space um, should anything happen in the boat. Now, of course... People thought the boat was unsinkable and that it was a good were just, gamble. They were just decorative <laughs>
0: anyway. That was the original but, thought, um, unfortunately. Of
1: course, it turned out not to be true. And so imagine not the actual Titanic, but imagine now we know, right, that there's a risk involved. Do we want to be a society that builds boats where some of people on the boat will have to go down with the ship while other people will... Um, be able to purchase some level of safety. And one of the things uh, Schelling asks is, do we want to be on that boat, um, in the lifeboat, when somebody else is struggling um, you know, overboard? Some people would find and, that an easy
0: question to answer. They'd say yes, but, but would there mm. be some discomfort and, and feeling of, of shame, a feeling of disgust, a feeling of... Um, of horror that your income was sufficient to save your life and other people's work. And and I think you give the modern example, which I think is very appropriate, of uh, if rich people can disproportionately purchase large SUVs and other cars which tend to be safer and more expensive, Mm -hmm. uh, and poor people are buying lightweight cars that are more likely to be crushed in an accident, especially with a larger car, how do we feel about that? Mm -hmm. Is there a role for the state, in intervening in those choices, or should we just let people sort and make their own choices?
1: And Schelling says something very interesting at the end of this essay. He says, well, you know, maybe given the freedom, you know, somebody wants to buy a ticket, you know, without a lifeboat, maybe we shouldn't prevent them, but maybe they should have to build their own boats. You know, so he imagines maybe we'll have, you know, two boats or two societies, one in which Lifeboats are provided for everyone, and one in which, you know, some people sail off without um, security.
0: And I, the, the other example that came to mind, and, and by the way, you know, we're not going to have time to go into all the, the details. But you do a, a a superb job, in giving all the standard economist arguments, most of them. I'm going <laughs> to raise a couple. I think you missed, but but most of the arguments you make are made very well on the other side. The, you know the. The idea that people should be free to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. The idea that people uh, should be informed. And if they choose when informed to, make, uh, mm-hmm. to not buy the safer thing, that uh, the argument that, well, maybe you should give people cash. Mm-hmm. They're the best judge of whether to buy the safety or not. And so give them the cash. If they then choose to buy the less safe seat because they'd rather have the money for something else, should you respect that? You go through all the, most of what I consider the, the standard arguments in economics and you do a very interesting job disagreeing with them. Mm -hmm. So you you go through all those. But I want to take a modern, even better example maybe than the cars, which is airline safety. Mm -hmm. So right now we have a system where the government has decreed that we're all equally safe, or unsafe as the case may be. We're forced to go through this um, TSA process if we want to go on an airplane. We're free not to go on an airplane. But if we want to go, we have to go through this process as a Classical liberal, my preference would be that airlines should be free to choose for themselves mm-hmm. and customers can then sort accordingly. So some airlines might choose one level of safety. Some airlines might, with, with all kinds of mm-hmm. scanning, some, mm-hmm. including intrusive scanning we, mm-hmm. that you might choose not to be part of. Others might just pass out guns to everybody mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> or, or box cutters uh-huh. to everyone. You mm-hmm. know, we can imagine a wide range of choices. There's, so one argument is let those choices work. If you get on that plane, that's true in the shelling sense. Mm-hmm. You're not on a plane where half the people have parachutes right, and right, half the people right. don't. Mm-hmm. But there's choices between planes in terms of expected outcomes and safety. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a bad idea? Does that make you uncomfortable?
1: So that's, the, I mean, that is the shelling idea of the separate, like, right, let people correct. have their... Um, I, You know, in in theory, I don't think it's a bad idea in part because I also share the, um, the, you know, uh, your uh, value of choice and enabling a wide range of choices. Which are very respectful,
0: again, in the book.
1: I do worry about um, if you make some choices available to people that are actually really harmful you'll wind up in situations where people sometimes feel more compelled to make those choices. So imagine, okay, you made the boats, and you can go on either boat, but some people are really poor in the society. Sure. And so it's going to be a lot of more, in, you know, kind of pull for them to take those boats. Um, so you might wind up unraveling a little bit of the safety net um, that you thought you provided by giving the other option. So the, right, because the
0: economic pressure is going to be very powerful, and you're going to get crashes and mm-hmm. bad outcomes that are going to be very depressing to the third party, the, those mm-hmm. of us on the outside who weren't involved in the choice, which is going to motivate us, I think, to, to influence that choice, right?
1: Right, and there will be other issues like, should people be able to take their children on any kind of sure. plane that they want? Mm-hmm. And so there are other kinds of Concerns that could be raised, but I think, in general, if you could really arrange the world so we could have a lot of different experiments going on and we had competent adults you know making various kinds of choices, and there was no interaction effects, I have no theoretically no problem it's just that I worry that there'll be all kinds of interaction effects and
0: so let me raise let me raise a a bigger uh, criticism of, of your approach mm-hmm. a more general criticism, which is. Uh, in any of these cases, where, and let's just take the simplest example, where there is discomfort by third parties about the transaction, whether it's uh, high prices for a particular product after a natural disaster, child labor, you give a whole range of things that that we find uh, discomforting as 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 bystanders, not mm-hmm. not as transactors. Um, clearly, we we both understand and agree that there are a lot of voluntary transactions where both parties want to make the transaction, and we know that a lot of people would want to stop that transaction who are not mm-hmm. party to it. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I want to want to focus on. Uh, and I would mention, we, we recently had a podcast with Mike Munger on, on vo- whether voluntary exchanges are actually voluntary, and we'll, of course, put a link up to that. So my question is this. So you point out I think 100% correctly, that a lot of people are, are discomforted by these transactions, which gives a justification for state intervention under certain circumstances. Do you have a theory of the state to go alongside with that? So we, we have we have markets which don't work the way they work in textbooks, and I think good economists are aware of that. Bad ones, or many of them, are problematic or a problem, and they're in your book in various ways. Uh, You know, they they hew to a very sterile line of efficiency. But I think a thoughtful economist says, oh, markets don't always work so well. We know governments don't work so well either. So talk about what effect that has, if at all, on your normative views.
1: Um, So I do say in the book that um, always when you're assessing an institution, you need to assess it against alternatives, So you might think an institution doesn't work that well, a market doesn't work that well, but then the obvious question to ask is, okay, what are the alternatives and do they work better? And you want to think broadly about that. You want to be open to, well, maybe you have to rethink a lot of the institutions, but you still have to think about what are the possible alternatives. If there's no possible alternative that's better then I think we are stuck with the not-so-good alternative we have. And one of the things I talk about in the book is sometimes you have a problematic market and you are tempted to close it down because it's an awful market. So child labor would be an example. But supposing you're in a society where the only alternative is to close it down and have a black market where the lives of children are far worse. Yeah. Well, then I think that's relevant to the question of what you should do. It doesn't change the assessment that the child labor market is problematic, but it does lead you to think, well, I don't have a viable alternative here. In some cases, government is too weak to close down, you know, to shut down a black market. So, Often. Yeah, often. In the United States, we do a pretty good job, you know, so... Child labor is not Our a widespread labor. practice in the United States.
0: Yeah, there's not much demand for it. Where there's a lot of demand, like for cocaine, we don't do such yeah, child. Yeah, we don't. That's true. Well, drugs is a good yeah.
1: is a good case, and that may lead you know somebody to think there's an argument for deregulation of yeah. drugs. Period, because the um, closing down the um, making it illegal hasn't shut down a flourishing practice. I wanted to get back to one thing you said, though. So my view isn't that the moral distaste people have gives grounds for government intervention. They're, so I mean, that's what I worry about. Externality is too broad Good point. because you, I don't want it just yeah. to be the fact that people disapprove. Correct me, it's yeah. got to be the fact that people are actually harmed. There's an then injustice. Then we need some conception of what a harm is. So in the child labor case what i'm interested in is so if you allow a practice of child labor and let's say you have the view willing buyer willing seller there is a third party cost because a widespread practice of child labor changes the price of adult labor and therefore makes it harder for families who don't want to put their children to work to not i mean to be able to do that and so they pay a cost mm-hmm. and So that's the, I'm I'm interested in thinking about um, harms. And then, of course, you need a big, a theory of harm, but a theory of harm that's different than a theory of, you know, as Mill said, the mere likings and dislikings of a majority shouldn't be a law to individuals. It's not the fact that people disapprove. It's the fact that their well-being or agency is actually damaged.
0: So I want to come back to the harm issue, but I, I want to raise one other question related to the power of the state. So you mentioned the possibility the state might be too weak, can't really shut down a market effectively, or we could argue, I suppose... Or the
1: state is bureaucratically inept and, you know... um, Correct. Right.
0: How about it's not um, just inept, but it's um, manipulated? So Mm -hmm. to take the airport security example, the people who make these very complicated scanners, which I don't believe do anything to make me safer, it's an empirical question, Mm -hmm. but... They certainly there's a certain unattractive aspect to it, which is that the people who make the scanners make large contributions to politicians, and so we can get outcomes that aren't effective at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I mean, here I'm. I think it, what the facts are. So as I said, you need a, a you know an assessment about the institutions, the capacities of the institutions. I tend to be less pessimistic about the capacities of the state than some of my libertarian friends are. No doubt. But it's an empirical question as to whether or not um, having state regulation has better outcomes along the dimensions, the moral dimensions you care about, than not having intervention. And I think you have to look at it case by case.
0: So let's go back to your... your, I want to come back to the harm issue. You, You give... I think four mm-hmm. examples of what you call four characteristics that can lead to a noxious market, meaning a market that that we might, on grounds of justice and ethics, not allow transactions to take place freely uh, in, a, in the way that that's traditionally defined. what are some of those characteristics that you that you would mention?
1: So you know going back to the idea that markets are heterogeneous and they're not all the same, I um, uh, identify four. Um, parameters that I think the noxious markets share to some extent or another. And um, to paraphrase a line from Tolstoy, uh, not all noxious markets are the same. All, all you know, happy markets are the same, <laughs> but all noxious markets are different. So Anna Karenina. Some, uh, right. Uh, no, it's first the Kreutzes. Oh, you know, it's Anna Karenina. The first, maybe yeah. the first line. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Um, so, some markets have what I call weak agency. So, you can think about that as either low levels of information or actually low levels of um, authorial, you know, of authorship of the market. So, you think about child labor markets, well, children are parties in some sense to the exchange, but they're not authors of the exchange, other people are transacting for them. Mm-hmm. Um, dictators on the international market uh, contracting debt. Mm -hmm. So these are markets that have weak agency, and so I think that's a flag, and the weaker the agency, the more the market, in my view, tips to be a noxious market. And I try to give a bunch of examples of weak agency. Um, Child labor is one, clear one. You know, maybe, you know, if you think about the housing bubble and, you know, how much people really understood about who were getting into subprime loans, you might think there were real information failures there. A lot of
0: people were spending other people's money, which is right. A, one which example is another, of where this yes. arises and why that happens. An interesting debate. We're going to put that aside. But, yeah, it's an interesting example. So there.
1: that's one uh, dimension. Another dimension is harm. So some markets are harmful, either for the agents themselves. Usually that goes along with their having weak agency. They don't really understand what they're contracting about or uh, has harm for third parties. So again, the child labor case, you harm uh, families who don't want their children, the children of families who want to educate their children but now can't because they can't afford not to put their children to work. You know, pollution is a standard case of a third party harm. So some markets, I say, generate, um, sufficient individual harms that they, you know, push the market into a noxious category. I also have a category of social harm. So I say some markets are really problematic from the point of view of a democracy. And now we get into more complicated and debatable, like, well, what should we think about campaign finance? Or, you know, what are the alternatives? And how does it work? And there are many, many complexities. But you might worry about, um, uh, you know, media being simply up for sale in terms of what what does it do to the (coughs) possibility of democratic discussion and wide range of opinions an empirical question but so on my view you have to look at sometimes for the social fabric so child labor is not only bad for children it's bad for the kind of society that you generate when you have widespread child labor which is this, an illiterate population
0: and this argument's been made in various ways on the minimum wage law that mm-hmm. that you know i'm Well, let's come back to that. We'll come back to Menowech. I think it's a nice example. brings up a bunch of other stuff. Carry on. We need a fourth category. And
1: the fourth category is, you know, it's a form of inequality, but it's really about um, extreme vulnerability. So one other feature of markets is that um, agents can come to market with very different amounts of resources. And... I argue that in some cases, the differences in the amount of resources agents bring leave some people in effect with no ability to enter and exit or sanction. And so the people then in that market accept terms that nobody with a decent alternative would ever accept. Maybe it's similar to the price gouge. Yeah, and this
0: is related to to Mike Munger's work on what he calls "you voluntary exchanges, truly voluntary exchanges, so... He brings in the concept of um, the best alternative to no agreement, a BATNA, B A T N A, the best mm-hmm. alternative to no agreement, meaning if, if there's an enormous difference in what I have at stake in the Transaction versus what you have at stake, gives the example someone's in the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's similar to the Titanic example in a way, in that it's a dramatic, it's not a small difference, it's a big difference. Somebody's starving, excuse me, thirsty. Mm-hmm. You have water, you're healthy and fine. You charge the person every single penny that they have with them and, and their heirs and everything else, and they thrillingly pay it. Uh, if it doesn't happen, they're dead. If you mm-hmm. don't get that, you make a little less money that month. It's a radically different um, set of circumstances each person's facing. Now, the implications of that, I think, are interesting. We'll talk maybe about price gouging and, and minimum wage. But certainly, that's a dramatic example of vulnerability, of vulnerability. similar to your point. Uh, so, so let's take some examples. Um, and I try again try to bring in some other some other issues. Let's start with price gouging. Mm-hmm. Where does that fit on your in your um, taxonomy?
1: So I think under, so-called, so-called so, price gouging. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there are going to be some circumstances in which, again, you know, there's again the question, what are the alternative institutions? But where, you know, take um, uh, fire sales in you know after droughts in third world countries. Where we just feel like there's some somebody is being taken unfair advantage of, and that um, the market isn't, in this sense, you know, really um, uh, improving the prospects of. I mean, it's press gauging is a little bit like a de facto monopoly, Mm -hmm. and I think if you think that monopoly is you know, supposed to be the counter, you know, markets are freedom and monopoly is the state of unfreedom because there's really only one transactor. There are a lot of cases of markets that start to look more like monopoly. Um, and so on the scale of, you know, not all monopolies, I mean, there are a lot of monopolies you can walk away from. Sure. So this is where the extreme vulnerability comes in, like the person who's um, faced with uh, a desert Where one person owns all the water. And this is actually an example that Robert Nozick worries about in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, where he, you know, wants to say, even on his extreme libertarian theory, there's gotta be a limit to what the person who owns all the water can do. Right? There's, and he thinks that he finds that limit in a return to the Lockean proviso, and there's a question whether he can really help himself to the Lockean Proviso. Talk about what
0: that is, the Lockean
1: Proviso. The Lockean Proviso is the idea in Locke um, that you can um, uh, obtain as much property, right, as, let's say, is the product of your initiative and entrepreneurial skill um, as is compatible with leaving enough and as good for others. So you can appropriate land, you can appropriate water, only up to the point when enough and as good is left for others. And for Locke, the origin of that is in a religious view where he thinks God has given the earth in common to man to use, and that sets a limit on how much any individual can appropriate. So there's a norm, this norm of sort of pre-appropriation rights to the world for all living things and that sets a, a limit on what you can do to other people. So you can't gouge. You, know, you can't be a monopolist in such a way as you make the position of people worse off than it would have been had there been no ownership. So,
0: and, so let, let's get into the, um, I really think of these as sort of the flip side, uh, price gouging and, and the minimum wage. They're, they're both phenomena where the price that's produced by freedom by free exchange, it has some unappealing characteristics, um, and as you argue, I think correctly, certainly you have to look at the alternatives. So, the standard way that I think is the most attractive case you can make. We, we've put a simple. We haven't gone on a case by case basis. Uh, in general, we've said we put ceilings or floors, and mm-hmm. we've said and they're nice examples because in the case of the of the so-called price gouging, it's a short term problem. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary problem it's induced typically by a, a catastrophe of some kind, another a flood, a hurricane, a tornado whatever. The minimum wage is a long term problem it, mm-hmm. it's a It's a price that persists and, mm-hmm. and and let's take your monopoly example certainly uh if I have low skill, I can have lots of competitive alternatives for my uh talents. But they're all crummy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, in that sense, it mimics mm-hmm. a monopoly mm-hmm. outcome. And similarly, with with uh, say clean water after a, a disaster, or fresh water or ice mm-hmm. after a, a power outage due to a disaster, there might be a lot of people selling ice, but it's so few relative to the demand that the price is something something akin to
1: mm-hmm. a
0: monopoly price. So, so it's a dramatic. They're both dramatic examples. I think are hard for. Uh, classical liberals or libertarians to defend. And the the, the other version of this is, and you, you bring this up in the book, uh, somebody who can't afford health care, which is an example, again, if you can't afford apples, mm-hmm. we'd say, well, life's tough, but it's not a tragedy. If you can't afford health care, it's a tragedy. So in all these cases, what I think is missing from the critique of markets, I think there's two things that are missing, and I want your reaction. One is the dynamic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I put a price ceiling on ICE after a, a hurricane, and the Attorney General's, it's not done at the national level much anymore, but it's done a lot at the state level, they ban unfair prices. I discourage the provision of ICE. You're well aware of this, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and it's, what's again, what I like about your book is that you're open to the, I think, good economics. So, obviously, we're going to hurt the people uh, who, who might want the ice, are now going to get none. They're not mm-hmm. going to have the freedom to transact. Similar argument made in the case of kidney sales. You recognize the fact that if we, it's an empirical question, mm-hmm. as you point out, but let's say it is the case that banning kidney sales means more people are going to die. Uh, and in the case of the minimum wage, the economist's argument is, again, I think the correct argument, Not there's a lot of other arguments mm-hmm. I, I, that I abhor, but abhor, but the correct argument is you're going to hurt the people you're trying to help. What's your reaction to that? Uh, those incentive effects that get get put into motion in those situations—are you willing? Do you recognize? I understand you recognize them, but you don't often do not find them decisive in your calculus. Why not? And or am I missing something?
1: Um, I think so. I'm not an empirical social scientist, and I'm open to. I mean, I actually I agree with you. I think the dynamic effects are really key. um you know child labor is an interesting case because i think there may be situations in which child labor is, there isn't any other alternative you know you ban child labor you don't get um you know some effect of uh you know more wages, investment yeah, yeah. into adult labor the adult labor is not enough to sustain the family It's not productive enough, and you have worse outcomes. And I think in those cases, we have to be open to think about, okay, transitional um, measures that might ultimately lead us down the path we want, but we can't get there by simply um, banning a market. So I think the dynamic effects are really important. I'm just less... uh, I don't find the idea that, some, you know, as soon as people say, well, this is the best we can do, um, I'm not convinced because I'm not convinced we've ever really tried all the alternatives. So even to take the example of organs, and, you know, organs is a hard case, and I don't have a, um, a clear view myself on um, whether or not organ markets are, you know, permissible, and if so, under what circumstances. But I don't think on the alternative, you know, we've done enough to try to increase donation. Um, and there are a lot of different things we could do. You know, One of the obvious is change the default. Um, and so right now you have to put a pink dot on your license to say you're going to be an organ donor. Do the opposite. Make the default everybody is an organ donor and you have to put a pink dot if you don't want to be an organ donor. Mm-hmm. Now that, out rather opt right, out rather than and that won't solve the problem, but it will probably make some modest increase. We could have campaigns. Stanford always has um we now have a battle that goes on with Berkeley over who can give the most blood. Uh-huh. Um, and it's amazing I'm what that bank, does. Yes. <laughs> and uh-huh. so, you know, I think there's a lot more we could do, you know, with, you know, technologies to, you know, induce, give incentives to donate. So I think there's more we can do.
0: Non-monetary incentives. Non-monetary yeah.
1: incentives. But if it turned out that there's nothing we can do, you know, sometimes there are really tragic circumstances, then, you know, all bets are off as to what the right you know, the best institution is in the context where you can't ever really solve the problem. Yeah, and I,
0: I certainly agree with you that, that. Um, uh, let, let me say it a little different than I was going to say it. It's certainly true that when you go to a market solution, you lose some of the innovation that might have come forth mm-hmm. uh, otherwise. Of course, the reverse is true. Uh, and I also find, what, which I want to talk about in a minute, but what, what I also find fascinating is we try hard, sometimes it still fails, but people don't accept that empirical case. Now, it could be it's still not a good empirical case. Example, I would use education. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to get the state out of the education market. Mm-hmm. You make a number of defenses of public education of various kinds mm-hmm. throughout the book, um, you know, the standard, I think, defense of public education is we haven't tried hard enough. I think we've tried for 40 years. We've spent an enormous amount of money greater than we did 40 years ago. It's failed. Mm-hmm. We're condemning kids in the inner cities and elsewhere to bitter and horrible lives that are grossly unfair and unjust. And isn't the burden of proof on on, on the proponents now to say, you know, let's mm-hmm. this isn't working? I, to prove why it's working? I don't get it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so, educate, you know, of course, there's a lot of empirical. So, I, I think actually education has worked relatively well, except as you say, for the, you know, least advantaged. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, you know, standard education for middle class kids, state actually does a pretty good job. You can only
0: surprisingly good, even, yeah.
1: It's true. Right? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's a lot of kids. <laughs> So, and it's, I mean, it's a huge, it's one of the, you know, the big public goods the state provides, and by and large it does it relatively well. Now, there are circumstances in which it doesn't function well, and then the question is why. And, you know, it's lots of empirical things here. My own view is a lot of the fix for the education problem has to be outside education and doesn't have anything to do with schools. No doubt.
0: I, although I, you know, I, it's clearly a big part of the problem. The other part, I think, is uh, my bias, mm-hmm. is that the places that do well, the parents have alternatives. The places that don't do well, the parents don't have alternatives. So th- there's an incentive effect working within the public system. But maybe, yeah, uh, easy to say, right? 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 <laughs> hard to right. prove. Uh, hard to even confirm or, or try to get evidence on. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is... But
1: education is a case where we do think, you know, it's a little bit like the minimum wage. We think there's some minimum level, whether it's the state that should provide it or some other entity, there's something that everyone is entitled to, you know, that we ought to protect. If, if We don't think the market by itself should supply this, because if there were market failure, we wouldn't be happy with some kids not going to school because their parents couldn't afford to educate them.
0: Right, and so for me, that's an empirical question. I'm much happier with that outcome than a world where people do go to school and don't learn anything for 12 mm-hmm. years. And So question is, can we do right. better about can that? We better? Can we improve that? And obviously mm-hmm. we could. We don't seem mm-hmm. to make enough progress there. The other issue I want to raise is this... Um, which fascinates me and I because it's so hard to to think about in any analytical way you you give a number of examples in the book where there are aspects to the a market solution that are unattractive because and i it's hard for me to put it into words you maybe be a shot at it and mm-hmm. then I won't get to my question there's something about the textural life that mm-hmm. results from having a commercial transaction that's the things we don't like about it we, mm-hmm. we all understand. we you know it We've given a lot of examples on this program of, you, know, you don't go to a friend's house and say, well, you know, I couldn't stop for a bottle of, of wine, so here's $20. Mm-hmm. Buy, mm-hmm. buy one you will really like. Uh-huh. It's even better than giving them the bottle uh-huh. you would have chosen. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, mm-hmm. no one thinks that's a good idea except the worst economist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are things about commercial transactions um, that, 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 that change, that can't be measured as tangibly mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. prices and quantities mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the main, uh, I think, advantages of your book in bringing that out. But there's similarly those things on the government provision side. So, for example, if I have, you give the example of someone who who's, doesn't have health care, doesn't have a health insurance, or worse, doesn't have health care, so poor, so destitute. So, yes, there's an argument for the state intervening. But if the state intervenes, the state intervention produces a certain quality of experience for that person, it be very different than the quality they'd have in a charitable solution. Now, you can debate about whether like, mm-hmm, the magnitudes mm-hmm. would be as big. Mm-hmm. But when I think about, as a taxpayer, what I'm doing for poor people through health programs, and I think about how the actual bureaucracy works, and it's not as, as, as glorious and, and ennobling as, as we might think about in theory. And I compare that to a world where individuals are motivated to help their, their fellow human beings— we lose something when we go to that bureaucratic, coercive world. And I find that people who don't like markets often don't recognize that. Do you agree with that that's an issue? Is it important?
1: Um, so I'm less uh, fond of the charitable solution,
0: mm-hmm.
1: mostly because I actually think there's a demeaning relationship okay. between the recipient and the uh, a donor in a charity case. Because the recipient is dependent you know, in the same way you might worry about government creating dependency, there's another kind of dependency here um, of somebody's largesse.
0: Absolutely. And
1: that creates a texture of a relationship between people um, that is, you know, uh, you know, you want people to look each other in the eye. You mm-hmm. don't want them to grovel, you know, or to, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, have to doff their hat. Um, and so I worry about that kind of relationship. In some sense, the impersonality of government takes that away, yeah, right? And especially if you think it's an entitlement, not a, you know, you're not dependent on somebody's largesse, we as a society have decided, right, that all of our members are going to get certain ga- benefits, um, and have access to certain benefits, what you know, whatever their position or condition is in society. Now, I think we have to worry about, and so this is where the texture comes in. We do have to worry about long-term incentive effects, and we don't want to bunch, you know, create a bunch of people who are free riders. We want people to have an ethos where they, you know, see that this is a co-responsibility for all of us, um, and you have to worry about that. But I'm not as um, a big a fan of the charity solution as getting the virtues that you want of I mean you get some, I agree. You know, there's something about the altru- you know, the opportunities for altruism. Well it's mainly for the donor. Right. But not relative- for the Well it depends. I think, right. you know, that's
0: why Maimonides, great thirteenth century Jewish hmm. yeah. philosopher said the highest level of charity is when both sides are anonymous. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I'm giving to, yeah. I don't know who I'm receiving from. Um, and
1: this was Titmuss' thing about blood, right? That blood was the, you know, in the gift relationship, blood was the ultimate um, form of charity because the recipients were anonymous and the donors are anonymous.
0: It's interesting. In, in the current world, we allow, I don't know if this is true or not, maybe you know. If I, if I want to donate a kidney, of course, kidney's a great example, mm-hmm. as is blood, because you can donate it and keep living. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Uh, although in the case of the kidney, you've raised your chance of a little bit of, of, of dying because it's inherently a little bit dangerous uh-huh. and you only have one kidney left. But uh, I think in a kidney case, you can give to a stranger, but of course you're going to get to know that person. And it, it leads to a lot, the way it's currently set up, it leads to some very tough emotional... Yeah. And, and some people actually don't issues.
1: want to. Um, some people actually don't want to know the person, so you can request anonymity. Uh-huh. And then, of on course, both so, on both sides. But a lot of people, you know, some people don't want the anonymity. Some people do. Sometimes well, you get person a person right,
0: that, yeah. or they want to browbeat the person for how much they owe them to. For <laughs> right, yeah, it's, right. It's a tough.
1: It, which is a very, yeah. and there is something about the anonymous giving that. I mean, you can see why Maimonides thought that this is the ultimate, because then there is no possibility of, you know, uh, tit for tat or right. groveling or, I mean, it's in its purest form.
0: Yeah. the uh, uh, a, a friend of mine who became a, a uh, CFO for a foundation when he mm-hmm. got the job, his friends, another friend said, uh, congratulations, you'll never eat, uh, you'll never pay for dinner again, and you'll never get an, an honest compliment because, of course, when yeah, you're handing yeah. out large sums of money, people right. like you more. At least they're going to mm-hmm. pretend they like you more. Mm-hmm. And there's something degrading about that, obviously.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I actually had an interesting experience this year because one of my students has decided to be an organ donor. Mm-hmm. and um, and I, you know, and i have a 12-year-old, and I've been thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about this for myself, too, because there are risks involved, but of course, we can live with one kidney, and particularly in the developed world, and if you're lucky enough to have access to healthcare, it really does raise an issue about, you know, why isn't this done more, and, um, and what are our responsibilities, and isn't this a you know a kind of form of beneficence that um, ought to be encouraged? And when the student came to talk to me, I was, "Are you sure you want to do this?" <laughs> you know, so it was a place where I found my own into you know sort of intuitive pull was opposed to what my you know what I think is probably the ethically right thing to do. Yeah, I- and. And that's a case where you always worry, I mean, my argument, like many uh, arguments in in these realms, does appeal to intuitions. And you always have to worry when you're appealing to intuitions. You know, what is the status of these intuitions? And, you know, there are a lot of intuitions we're probably better off if we could push away. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't think we can bypass them.
0: Well, they come Um, from a deep place, and we often invoke F.A. Hayek on this program, and He was a deep respecter of those norms Mm -hmm. and and intuitions that had evolved over time culturally. And and even though we might not understand them, they have a certain merit for Mm -hmm. that reason. Uh, It's interesting because I have a friend who's a social worker and she uh, counsels uh, organ donors. And um, I think their default is to discourage them initially Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. on the grounds that there's often regret, complications, problems. Uh, the initial enthusiasm passes, and there's you know issues you talk about a lot in the book: issues of perfect information, knowledge, and agency, uh, vulnerability. But um, I think our default should be to applaud it uh, mm-hmm. rather than, as some yeah. people view it, as, as a as a, as a form of pathology mm-hmm. to make it because it's too generous. <laughs> right, it's right. such a generous gesture. Mm-hmm it suggests something must be terribly wrong. Um, I think we should probably probably applaud it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think so too, but I, I find myself strangely <laughs> resistant to doing what I think is right. <laughs> uh, that's
0: the academic in you. <laughs> it's the contrary in all, in all academics. Um, let, let's close with the discussion of an example you have in there that I found haven't thought about in a long, long time, but it's a sort of a classic example, which is uh, we don't allow market in votes. <laughs> Um, And, you know, my view on this, very similar uh, to to my problems with efficiency as a a norm or some kind of decisive thing, there's a lot of ethical issues that I think we all would agree um, that I I really don't care about the efficiency. Mm -hmm. I think there should be a principle that I'm free to read what I want, and the fact that it harms you, and maybe Mm -hmm. harms you, you'd be willing to pay more than I'm, well, obviously you could pay me to stop reading it, Mm -hmm. uh, but if there's collective action problems, there's free-riding problems, so you can't raise the money, so we just, you should just ban those books mm-hmm. because the net gain is supposedly greater than the net loss. I think that's, that's just evil. I think that we should have mm-hmm. a moral imperative. In several ways, I have no problem arguing that it's wrong to sell votes. It's just mm-hmm. unethical. But the more I thought about it, I started thinking, why? <laughs> so it is, It is. Um, I think, our natural thought, coming back to intuition, mm-hmm. well, of course it's wrong to sell a vote, but then I started... Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not so comfortable with that. I'm not so sure. Part of it's my bias as a classical liberal, mm-hmm. but in my ideological emphasis. But what's wrong with selling votes?
1: Right. You know, so um, I think it's a great question to think about because it seems so obvious and it's not yeah. so easy to give an explanation. So, you know, one, one reason somebody might think right away is, look, the whole point of giving people votes you know, in a democracy, is to move away from an aristocracy where the decisions are made by the rich and the powerful, and if you have an unequal society and you allow market and votes, poor people will, in theory, more likely to sell their votes, and so, in effect, you're moving back to a system where wealth is... Uh, predicts political influence and power. And that's an anti-democratic idea that's an aristocratic idea. So I think that's part of, I don't think it's the full explanation, because I think you could imagine, think about a world in which we redistribute income, and then ask, now do we want to market in votes? And And
0: you give the James Tobin quote, famous quote, uh, at least it was when I was in grad school, Mm -hmm. that a good second year grad student can prove it's efficient to let people sell votes on the obvious grounds that Both parties are better off. What's the the problem?
1: Right, right, right. And so, but I do think one, you know, one way to think about it is that votes aren't your own individual property. They're really, you know, we, the people, you know, are just deliberating and deciding what to do for us. And when you treat your vote like it's just a private good, you're, in some sense, Changing. I mean, so this would be a kind of Walzerian view about the meaning of what you know, what it means to have a vote and what voting is as a practice.
0: About Michael Walzer. Michael
1: Walzer. So this idea that you know, it's really about co-deliberation among equals, and it's not about you know private preferences. It's about we're trying to figure out what we should do as a country, right? In the in the it's the case of national election. What's good for us? What's in our good? And once you take the vote out and make it a market good, then it's not really about what should we all do. It's about, well, what do I want? You know, I don't care about this thing, so you take it.
0: Yeah, the, the, the funny part about it, the reason I like the argument, the issue being raised and what made me think is that I'm a person who's not particularly sympathetic to democracy as a decision-making process, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason that I'm a Mm -hmm. libertarian. But even I Mm -hmm. am sort of repulsed by the idea of selling votes. And then I start thinking about it because I'm susceptible to this romance Mm -hmm. that the current system has this egalitarian aspect that we all get one vote. But You gave the example that if we sold votes, then maybe the rich would have a lot of political power. They already have an enormous amount. Mm -hmm. Both the left and the right Mm -hmm. are particularly worried about it right now with the... Mm -hmm. Bank bailouts and the and the, the way that the, the country's going, it's ironic, right, mm-hmm. that that we have this credible intuition, which I think is misplaced, about the sanctity of the vote. Because although I like democracy rather than dictatorship... One of the alternatives, right. But the our current democracy, I don't like so much. And I would rather see more things put into the sphere of, of decentralized decision-making rather than top-down, so... I thought it to be a, a very provocative example.
1: It is a great example. I, I, I often start um, and when I teach this stuff with the vote, because the students immediately say, "Of course not," and then find that they quickly run out of arguments <laughs> as to why not. So
0: My guest today has been Deborah Satz. Deborah, thanks for being part of econ Talk.: Thank you.